All right, all right, all right. What episode is this? 96. Should we call it quits at 100? We could. Do whatever we want. Scare people. No, I'm joking, listeners. I'm not seriously asking the question. Though I've always been a celebratory person, well, at least compared to Eugene. And I think whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I'm, I'm pretty positive. And I always think that we should do something special for Milestones, but I haven't cooked up what we're going to do for episode 100 yet. How will we give away episode 100 for free? <laughs> yeah, I think that's <laughs> Let's it. Let's do that. This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Kan. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. Paper, rock, scissors? Yeah. One, two, three. Oh, I lost. Oh. I, I put rock. Oh, it's funny because the lag, like I I see what I throw out and then I see, I have to wait like a second for you to kind of uh, throw your thing. But you have to commit because even though it lags, if you change it, I'm going to see. It was a, a difficult sort of a topic selection process for us this week, wasn't it? Sharice was hating on all my choices, but in fairness, wasn't like hating. I didn't say I hated them. I just said something along the lines of wasn't really feeling it. None of these are interesting. Did I say Anyways, that? Oh dear. Even okay. myself, even myself, the original choice I didn't end up running with. I, I ran with something else. So you so, repicked a subject like T minus two hours from the yeah, point of recording this podcast. My original subject was I felt a little bit too business heavy. I feel like we've been talking a lot about business lately. Maybe you have. I don't know. Maybe I Anyways, this is, this is kind of in the vein of business, but not really. Okay. Um, my, sub, my subject is, have we hit peak podcast? And the subtitle is, if past experience, cough blogs, is any indication a shakeout is nigh? Am I saying that last word right? Yes. You are saying that right. This article has been slightly viral. Yeah, it has been actually. Yeah. I've seen it discussed in a lot of places, but... I was also thinking maybe the places in which we occupy in terms of digital spaces are consolidated around podcasts huh. and the demographics behind podcasts. I mean, it's really hard for me to figure out if that's true or not, because I'd have to go so far out of my circles in order to find out if this article is viral over well, there. In terms, in terms of virality, how do you define it as virality? Is it because you saw it on Twitter? I saw... I would say at least four people share this. On Twitter. On Twitter. Yeah, got it. Anyways, so the common joke these days is that everybody has a podcast. I actually recall two specific examples from Overheard LA. So Overheard is this, how would you describe it? It's kind of like this series of comedy accounts for each city. And it encapsulates the character of the city through these conversations that are allegedly, air quotes, overheard like in a cafe or in somewhere yeah. in public right yeah so person one goes i want to start a podcast person two goes everyone has one 
I had a panic attack last year and called 911, and one of the medics kept talking about his podcast while I was hyperventilating. Number two, having a podcast is this generation's lower back tattoo. I actually also remember that second one, and that one hits yeah. home for me. Yeah. How long have we been doing this for? We've been making, doing making up? this for two years now. Oh, has it? So we're kind of ahead of the curve. We started in the summer of 2017. Oh, interesting. We, Anyways, are, ahead, we uh, are ahead of the curve. As you continue to talk about this article, it'll be shown that we are not, yeah. not the target of the article. Are we, are we a failure for not being bigger, despite no, being ahead of the curve? No, The thing is that because we persevered despite being a failure, that makes us different, rather than Got throwing it. in the towel. Okay, so let's get back into it. The first story within this article starts with Morgan Mandriota and Lester Lee, two freelance writers who were looking to grow their personal brands. They set up a simple recording for the Advice podcast using a spare library room and an iPhone 5. And according to Morgan, she was like, they thought they'd be successful with a ton of affiliate marketing deals and ads, but eventually they shut it down after six episodes. Yep. That six episode thing is kind of what threw me through a curveball. I was like, whoa, you quit after six episodes? Six is... I was is, like, man. Yeah. Six is really, really low. It's like, hey, writing a blog post and like quitting after two blog posts because like, hey, I don't have a million followers. Yep. But I, I think ultimately people need to realize that success in media today, especially today, is trust. And trust is very difficult to force. It's really a byproduct of time, right? So unless you exist long enough, then it's hard for people to kind of build trust with your brand. Yeah, yeah. And I think the thing about virality, like going viral, is that actually often people have been around a long time before they become viral. It just seems as though that they were new when you discover them. In reality, they were not. So after that story, they go in, discuss the actual sheer number of podcasts in the space right now. So there's about 700,000 podcasts currently launched and approximately 2,000 to 3,000 more launching every month. Yeah, but there was also a stat about how many actually put out a new episode every week. Oh, I think I must have missed that, actually. Okay, so between March and May of this year, only 19.3% of existing podcasts introduce a new episode. So I guess within that, like, I think as much as people, especially the overall topic of this is, are we at peak podcast? I would argue that no, we're not at peak podcast. Oh, wow. Just going straight people, to the answer. People are definitely not doing this with a certain level of cadence, refinement, et cetera. So yeah. I'll, I'll get further into it. But, you know, I think ultimately it's definitely not peak. But one of the things I really enjoyed within this piece was this quote where they said, and yet the frequency with which podcasts start and then end, or pod fade, as it's coming to be known in the trade, has produced a degree of cultural exhaustion. We're not necessarily sick of listening to interesting programs, but we're definitely tired of hearing from every friend, relative, and coworker who thinks they're just an iPhone recording away from creating the next serial. I don't know. I'm not that tired of hearing from people who want to start a podcast. Yeah, I'm not really tired either. I think... I believe, Is it just me? I don't know. I think there's a misalignment of how people see creating something new and the expectations. Yeah, I mean, most often when 
people find out that I do a podcast and then they talk to me about their podcast ideas, I'm always rooting for them to do it as something creative that they're interested in doing. I guess they've never pitched it to me as like, oh, this is my get rich quick scheme. So that would be the difference. Is that usually when people talk to me about it, it, they understand that it would be like a hobby that they're interested in dabbling with. And then I'm like, yeah, sure. I think you should go into that. As an aside, do you think that people misinterpret how much work goes into creating consistent content? Hmm. Do I think people misunderstand? Like the average person. Weirdly, a lot of people do ask me about the process we use to make this podcast. And I think that there is some slight amount of surprise at the amount of work that goes into it. Even though I don't think we actually do that much work. The ideation part is actually not very difficult. Yeah, but we also done this a couple times now. No, but I'm saying like in general, I think that's the thing that is most challenging for people is like the ideation aspect of it. I mean, I would say that in general, ideas... Oh, you mean coming up with a podcast idea? Yeah, like I think in general, across the board, like ideas are usually pretty, pretty easy to come across. But when I think of the overall process too, I'm like, there's a lot more things I wish I had the resources to do. Yep. Rather than having a lack of ideas. Yeah. But anyways, I'll, I'll keep going through this. Here's another quote by Karen North, a clinical professor of communication at the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California. The thing about podcasts is that it's very, very hard to determine popularity. It's easy for the host to appear to be an influencer. And whether anybody finds that podcast or listens to it and the bounce rate, who knows? I think that's like a really important part of the whole piece because it's true. It's like, it almost feels as though anytime you have host, because I mean, if you're hosting a podcast, there's a certain level of expectation. Mm-hmm. And I think that most people probably assume by virtue of you being a host that you have some credibility behind it. But the ease in which I you think can- I think in this case, you mean like on host with an interviewee. I think in general, I think any aspect of someone speaking and going- out on a limb to present their voice. Generally speaking, there's an assumption there's a level of credibility there. Really? Or do you disagree? I, I mean, I, I disagree because we're in this position where we're co-hosts. And I don't, I don't see myself differently as being the co-host of a podcast than I do as regular Sharice not on the mic. But, but a listener would want to expect you bring something to the table, right? which is why they listen to you. That's true. And I do carry this feeling that listeners are listening to me and have some kind of expectation from me. Of especially your point of view, like how you break down arguments. There's a lot of things that exist there. But I think what ultimately needs to be understood too is that in the realm of content, there's like editorial content and there's like sort of very objective journalism or, or more factually based journalism, right? And I think that podcasting generally leans more into the editorial side. Yeah. Where it's very much opinion-based. Yeah. Right? So I think that when, when you kind of break it down like that, it's, it changes a little bit the dynamic between the reader, or the listener, I should say, and the actual content itself. I think when it's editorially driven, a lot of times it's at the sort of belief of the host or the person that's involved that their opinion matters. And I think that's sort of where the challenge is currently 
entering into the world of podcasting where all these people feel they have something important to say, but the reality is maybe they don't really have anything important to say. I think what it is to rephrase what you said the way I see it is that... Yeah, I was definitely working through that as I was talking through it. So I don't think it's very clear. Is that opinion-based podcasts, which are a lot of them out there, depend on the personality of the person speaking. Because as much as I love The Daily, it doesn't really matter to me that it's Michael Barbaro or not, even though I think he's a great host. Because I listen to The Daily for actual news about what's happening, right? So the show survives despite whoever the host is. But a lot of other podcasts survive specifically because of the person who's hosting and who they are as individuals. So that person has to have something to them, whether you trust them or you find them funny or find them charming. And in very rare cases, even if you really hate them and you love listening to them to like hate them, I think that's like a 0.01%. That's the thing, right? Is that it is personally linked. Yeah. But I I think what what I was trying to get at is that there is a level of self-importance that pushes people to start a podcast. That's part of the the convoluted nature of, yeah. of why people are getting involved. And I think okay, that is the reason like, why. But there is some level of self-importance with publishing in general. Correct. No, I don't, I don't disagree. But I think that podcasting is largely self-publishing. Anything, anything out there is sort of like self-publishing in a capacity these days, right? But I think that podcasts generally teeter into that realm of first and foremost being editorial, like op-ed driven. I don't know. Self-importance makes it sound so negative. It is negative. There's a lot of shit out there that doesn't need to be out there. <laughs> okay. But also okay. the thing is, the, I think that the two things that I, I kind of see as a thread is the, the sort of thing around self-importance. And being naive to like understanding what it takes, because mm-hmm. like honestly, you, you someone thought they could launch a podcast and within six episodes have Casper and like stamps or whatever knocking on their door to yeah to put ads up, right? Yeah, yeah. So I guess moving on, as is the case with the first story with Morgan and Lester, Jordan Harbinger of the Jordan Harbinger Show basically just interviews a bunch of well-known affluent people about business and he said there's a podcast industrial complex going on and hosts aren't starting shows because it's a fun niche hobby he said they do it to make money or because it will make them an influencer Mm. which i think are the two sort of things that i we've realized too is that like the reason why people are starting these podcasts are probably fundamentally misaligned with what it needs to actually make something successful it's not that I don't trust Jordan Harbinger in this article. I do. But at the same time, I find it personally so baffling that anyone thinks podcast is the way to make money. Some people can. I think that, that people look at it and they realize that, hey, you know what? There's people out there with sufficiently large names that are dominating the space because I think the early entrants have such a massive command of the overall sort of like dialogue, whether it's like the Joe Rogans of the world, like Tim Ferriss, etc. I think that th- there's a belief that these people think that they can do it as well. So I think that's where 
I kind of have an issue. It's like the self-importance meets the desire to make this a business extremely quickly. Right. Wait, actually, that remember when you asked me the question earlier about whether people misunderstand how much work goes into podcasts? Mm -hmm. Now that you talked about Joe Rogan and Tim Ferriss, the answer definitely has to be yes. Because Joe Rogan, Tim Ferriss, like those types of podcasts, they make it sound really casual. Not not the mixing, but like the content is really approachable. But people misunderstand that. In fact, there is like a crew of people behind Joe Rogan and Tim Ferriss who do production and editing and mixing and publishing and all of that. Because the fact that like when you have Joe Rogan in your ear, it just sounds like he's chatting. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like what the show is and like what it takes to produce it are different. Yeah. So maybe I can get into some of the reasons why I found this personally interesting. Go for it. Right. So as I mentioned, we're not nearly at peak podcast. I think peak podcast will fundamentally be more challenging. Like I think there's just a few more steps up because if you look at all the different media formats available to us, I would say podcast is definitely higher than just writing, but also lower than video, right? But it's still higher than writing. Yeah. So anytime you have a barrier to entry or there's some sort of thing to overcome, it's going to be harder to get sort of this blanketed movement. One way of looking at it. Yeah, no, I accept that. I think the one thing that that needs to be also understood too is that no one's ultimately saying you shouldn't start a podcast. Yeah. But I think it's a reevaluation of like the sustainability of it. And let me ask you something. Do you think there's a correlation between the success of something and how interested or passionate that person is around what they're doing? Mm, the success of something and the passion of the person doing it. Are those correlated? Not obviously one-to-one, -one, but for uh, the most part. Hum, 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 hum. I want to say no. Well, it depends what success means. It definitely doesn't mean monetary success. I bring a lot of passion to this podcast, and we have not hit monetary success with this. That is, that is true. It doesn't but mean I don't think of this as a success in a way. I do. Yeah. It's not financial but success. But if, if you and I didn't care about this, I don't imagine this having any chance of anything i mean if like we, sustainability if we didn't yeah. care about this we wouldn't be doing this right now exactly but that's the thing is like i think that anytime anyone goes and starts something there needs to be at some point in the conversation internally or whoever you're working with like what does success look like and what does sustainability look like i mean i get clowned on a lot for saying what does success look like at every single corner but it does help frame like what you want to achieve right because if you know what you want something well, yeah to look like then you know how to strive for it but i could probably count on one hand the amount of times where i've like actually dreaded recording this oh thank you because i actually enjoy this and like whether or not you have you know a thousand people or ten thousand people or a million people you still kind of want to just be in the process of doing it right and i think i've learned a lot and i've developed a lot of other learnings from just doing this i think we, we talked we noticed this quite quickly your ability to speak in public, I think, changes significantly when you're listening to yourself week in, week out, editing and whatnot. Oh, yeah. When you're forced to record. And you're also forced to think very quickly. Okay. To go back, though, to your question about success and sustainability, it is a good question. I wouldn't hate on you for asking the question, what does success look like frequently? Because 
it has to come into balance in the sense that like even if we were really passionate about this but it took each of us 20 hours a week to produce it, it is also not sustainable like success is not just we enjoy doing it and therefore we keep doing it right it's also the enjoyment balances out with like the amount of time it takes and that applies for all things that you pursue right like it's okay if your success is not monetary success, but other things have to make that possible. And if it is monetary success, then like what are the things that make that a possible goal? Yeah. I mean, I think that there has to be a, a reevaluation of like how we, how we experience things and what we value. Because if you look at it from the context of personal interest and success, like it doesn't necessarily need to be this many downloads or this much revenue coming in right it's really about what are things that you're personally interested in and how do you how do you promote that and force rank it higher than mm. the other financial stuff mm. <laughs> but i think people are really bad at that though i think people are really bad at that i don't think i'm great at it i mean in a time and place where i think that happiness is if it, it seems like it's quite hard to come by how do you find a way to rank certain things in a quote-unquote happiness scale? Even though that your ability to do it would actually bring you a lot of uh, clarity. It would allow you to understand too whether something's worth doing or not. God, this is like the deepest question. Is it? Kind of. You just asked me about essentially how to find happiness in life. Well, it's, I mean, I don't know. I genuinely think that is what you just asked me. I don't know. I think the thing is that value when it's non-quantifiable in numbers is really hard for people to grasp. And we've talked about this before when we talked about subscriptions. Because a feel-good feeling is not easily measurable. And how do you measure that to make sure that it's worth what you're putting in? Mm-hmm. And that's why it's really easy for people to look at, including myself, to look at listener numbers or downloads or like time spent, as opposed to yeah. how does this make me feel as a person? Like, what is my happiness quotient in relation to this activity? It's almost like you'd have to come up with an individual survey for every activity that you do. But isn't that sort of dictated at every given moment? When you make a decision, like the emotional resonance of it, something there are certain things I know for sure that I don't even have to think twice about. Like I will one hundred percent be happy doing, right? Yeah. And and I think that's the thing is like more often than not, we're so actually guided quite strongly by emotion to make decisions. But I mean, it's not just this would make me happy doing it, but the cost of me doing it is appropriate. Like, if I had well, to wake I, up at 4 a.m. every week to do this podcast, I would be significantly less happy to do it. But then what things would you be okay waking up at 4 a.m. to do? Nothing. Oh, like, nothing. <laughs> yeah. A, a flight once a year. That's it. Uh, my question to you is, do you remember our first few episodes in terms of what the expectation was? Um, okay. So you asked, this is like the legend of this podcast now. You asked me to start this podcast, and I, the math in my head, figured I don't have to tell anyone that I'm doing a podcast. I don't have to share this with anyone. 
So yeah, I'll do it because it's very low risk. But then did you have a mental commitment as to how long you'd do it before you would you would decide whether it was viable or you wanted to continue or not? I think we committed on paper to 10 episodes. It's already four more than Morgan and Lester. <laughs> and then I guess in my heart, I committed to doing it until I hate doing it or doing it until it doesn't seem useful. And did you have those laid out like parameters? Obviously, the one where you don't enjoy doing it is very easy. But then what does usefulness look like? What does usefulness look like? I have not listened to all of the 700,000 podcasts out there with two to 3,000 launching each month. That's insane. That can't be real. Some of those must be bots. No, I mean, you can launch one, but it doesn't mean that it'll be around or consistently updated in six months. But my point is, out of the podcasts I have listened to, I think that we do have a unique positioning. So I guess this goes back to what you were saying about self-importance. Like part of the thing that drives me to continue this is self-importance because I believe that we do do something that is somewhat different from what's available. That does sound egotistical out of 700,000 podcasts. See, I actually would be okay having this conversation with you regardless of anyone listened. Yeah. I guess the usefulness for me is about having my ideas challenged and or having a different perspective on things. I mean, this is really mushy, but especially since I moved to London, I do look forward to this because otherwise Why? like, I wouldn't just get to chat about stuff Yeah, but with someone familiar because I don't get to go into an office anymore. And I also don't even have class right now, so I just sit in my room. <laughs> Maybe to cap it off, we should outline what peak podcasting would actually look like or is it something that we'll never be able to reach no we can reach it we must be able to i think everything has a peak i guess is it a, a peak in terms of what though when will we have hit peak podcast people still find the notion of publishing complicated so even though Anchor makes it really easy, we use Anchor. This was not a sponsored episode. I think the general understanding is that it's difficult and they feel like, oh, you have to submit to the iTunes store and you have to get approved and things like that, which is a different attitude from blogging when it was like peak blogs, like everybody understood how you could make a blog. So I think that's one factor when everyone understands, oh, this is how you get a podcast up on air, then that will contribute to peak podcast so my interpretation of peak podcast is actually when you have like full full saturation in and you have the inability for people to kind of come in and actually be heard and what i mean by that is like if i create something but there's so much in the space right now that i can't even break through then i'd probably deem that to be essentially peak podcast and i don't think we're there yet because the overall quality of podcasting, I still think isn't there yet. Well, what's also interesting right now is that a lot of actually influential people, sportscasters, authors, etc., who didn't previously have podcasts are still starting their podcasts. They and their marketing teams still believe that there is room for them. So I think also when these people, like 
you understand what I mean, like the traditional influencer when all of them actually have podcasts and then they stop doing it. That would be peak podcast. Do you, so you think that peak podcast needs to be retroactively assessed? So basically, if podcasts become less popular, then you can kind of be like, oh, that was the peak. I kind of think so. I actually do kind of think so. Because there's so much of the world that actually isn't up on podcasting either. So you might say that podcasting might have hit its peak in the in the Americas, like North America or whatever. Uh-huh. But I think it's actually quite a ways away from being adopted in other parts of the world. Yeah. No, I think what you just said about what I said is totally accurate. Because did you see how Netflix subscribers dropped for the first time? Yeah, I did. This past quarter? After knowing that, then you might look back and be like, oh, actually, early 2019 was peak Netflix. And that was like the signal. So I do think in some ways it has to be like a decrease in popularity that indicates to you when peak really was. Yeah. But I think what you say about markets is actually really insightful, too, because like we're an English language podcast, but there's so much opportunity for non-English language podcasts. Yeah. Maybe that's where we need to go. We need to do a Cantonese making it up. No, that'd be so bad. But maybe, you know what I was thinking too is <laughs> but perhaps, perhaps the future of podcasting is actually a different format, like a modified, improved upon format. That it's not podcasting. It, it isn't, but it is. Like imagine if podcasting itself was done in a way where the transcription was essentially like seamless mm. and it was a quasi reading listening experience. Sure, I can picture that with the right AI technology. But then it becomes both a visual and audio. I mean, it'd be great for accessibility, but I'm not convinced yeah. that people would do that at the same time because the, the reason people listen to podcasts as much as they do is because they listen while doing other things. Do you ever listen to podcasts while browsing? The internet? Yeah. No. So this is the thing too, is that people think that podcasting is critical because of commuting. But if we start to have autonomous driving vehicles, then you don't need to drive. So I could be playing a video game instead of actually listening to a podcast. Yeah, but people, wait, wait, wait. You just equated commuting with driving. People also commute in many other ways and listen to podcasts. No, no, I, that's true. But I'm saying like if a big part of the marketplace in the United States drive. Yeah. Right. So, right. but if the future yeah. is in a world okay. where, like, okay. actually, but, but like in the future that you're painting, where we have self driving autonomous cars and everybody takes those to commuting, I feel like so much else about the world is different that I have difficulty thinking about the future of podcasting in that context. I mean, they're going to need media. I don't know. That's, that's my take on it. I think that commuting right now, unless, unless podcasting becomes like a multi activity, activity in the sense that you're doing it alongside something else then i think there's actually a chance it might not grow as big as some people say it'll grow i mean i listen to podcasts while cooking doing the dishes buying groceries unless you also make all of those things in my life go away all right i can't believe we've gone 38 minutes on your subject how is that even possible you ready to move on i am ready to move on 
So my subject this week, which I selected by myself, is where are... Oh, wait, you know what I just realized when we played rock, paper, scissors earlier? Yeah. Because you won, you get to pick who goes first. Not that you have to go first. No, that's fine. Okay, just thought I'd clarify that. Anyway, my subject this week is where are all the Bob Ross paintings? And this is from a New York Times video. So Bob Ross, he was the host of The Joy of Painting, and he painted more than a thousand landscapes for his television show. But it didn't seem possible to buy a Bob Ross painting, and it was just not appearing in auction houses, in galleries, on the market, anywhere. And also, I should mention that Bob Ross died of lymphoma in 1995 at the age of 52. So a couple of reporters from the New York Times set out to find out what happened to his paintings and how come no one can buy one. And they wound up in Herndon, Virginia at the Bob Ross headquarters, which is run by the Kowalski family. Joan Kowalski is the president of Bob Ross, Inc. She is Annette and Walt's daughter, and she basically explains to reporters that it just honestly never occurred to them to sell the paintings because that's just not who Bob Ross was. So they estimate that they have 1,165 of his paintings sitting in Virginia, essentially packed into boxes and taken care of, which is really interesting to me. There, there are several things about this article that are interesting to me. This is one of them, which is the fact that the Bob Ross paintings are actually valued quite highly, you know, not as highly as, you know, an, a Renaissance old master painting, but highly as well. And the fact that they have 1,165 of them is a significant chunk of money. But the Kowalski family is just like not interested at all. So a little bit more factually speaking, which I found really interesting as well to learn about Bob Ross is that he was discovered by this woman, Annette Kowalski. The story is actually a little bit sad. When Annette and her husband's oldest son died, her husband signed her up for this guy, Bill Alexander's class. Bill Alexander was also this TV show painter dude, but he wasn't teaching classes anymore and they found Bob instead. And Annette took his classes and then she said that I was so mesmerized by Bob that I couldn't paint. So after that point, they just became really good friends with Bob Ross. And after Bob Ross and his wife both died, they became the sole owners of all of his paintings. And she is also the only authenticator of what is an official Bob Ross painting. What is also interesting is that most recently, at the beginning of this year, the Smithsonian was donated some paintings and objects. So they're one of the few external places that own his work but they also are not planning to put it on display anytime soon they just have his work and objects as part of their main collection so i'm going to go into the second bigger reason why i was interested in picking the subject what bob ross inc mainly does and there are other employees at this company is they talk to bob's fans so bob's fans will just call the headquarters at 1-800-BOB-ROSS and then just talk to people about the paintings, but also about life. And it's because Bob in the last four or five years, like really surged in popularity despite having died 24 years ago. Did you notice this as well? 
Was Bob Ross part of your childhood? Yes, he was. Oh, really? But I, like you watched him on public access TV? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Why, you don't, you, you don't think we have TVs in Canada? That is not why I said that. Let it not be said that that is what I was suggesting. No, because he wasn't part of my childhood, is what I'm saying. Like, Oh, interesting. And you're not because that much though, older than me. So, But I didn't watch him when I was a kid. What I find interesting is that, yeah, because basically this relevance, this topical relevance is really on the basis of his popularity the last few years and you becoming aware of him through that yeah and so so when all this bob ross shit popped up i was like hmm why is he popular like to you what's the allure of bob that's exactly why i picked this subject okay so the thing is that he's not personally interesting to me like i am not this person who has suddenly become really invested in the joy of painting and to be honest, I've only seen snippets of episodes like over the past couple of years. Like he wasn't part of my childhood the way Sesame Street was. And for Sesame Street, I feel deep nostalgia. Like they recently did an NPR Tiny Desk concert and it was like really moving. So I don't feel that way about Bob Ross, right? And I also suspect that his popularity in the last couple of years is not just due to actual memories and nostalgia. Like, it's not just people who were alive during the 1970s and 80s and who watched his original show while it was airing. Mm -hmm. For example, like, Twitch did a marathon of the 400 episodes in 2015 and attracted 5.6 million viewers. And then they redid the marathon in October of 2018. And so because of that fact, I think a lot of the people who are currently really enjoying Bob Ross are too young to have been alive when the show was originally airing. Maybe he's just a generational talent, to be honest. What do you mean by that? Like, I think he's a once in a lifetime type of person, like both as a creative, as a talent, as a communicator, so that he actually is able to move with the generations. So it's not really a generational thing. Because as you were kind of going through this, I was thinking to myself, is Bob Ross and his popularity based around a certain generation or demographic? And obviously, you've just shown that he's transcended generations. Yeah, definitely has transcended generations. Interesting to think that there is no one who has filled the gap in the same way, who provides what he provided. Which is kind of what I mean by the generational talent thing. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is has to do with art. I even though I didn't really get into watching the episodes, I I completely understand how someone would find the way he does art to be really approachable and accessible. So it makes painting and art seem like a thing that genuinely anyone can do, and that you don't have to be an expert or like this all black wearing gallery going person to appreciate art. Mm. So I think that's one aspect of it. And then I do think the other aspect is that he's really, he seems like just a really nice guy. And it it seems like off air, he was also a really nice guy. So there's that element of it as well, that he was just this person who loved what he did and loved talking about it and sharing it with other people. And, was a caring person and people gravitate to that 
The other thing, this is the theory part of this subject, is I wanted to talk about why in the current climate, people might be gravitating to Bob Ross and Bob Ross-like material. So there Wait, was also- Bob Ross-like material? Can you clarify that? Like Sesame that? Street, right? And Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And I kind of lump, or, or the Muppets. And I think these things are non-political for the most part. They're, you don't have to worry about it. And they're child-friendly and really wholesome. Would you agree with that description? Yeah, I would agree. I think the wholesomeness is maybe the part that is almost like polarizing, but in a, in a weirdly positive way. What do you I think mean? everything now seems so when i when i watch those shows i feel like they're the wholesomeness is actually pretty authentic yeah but if i saw that today in 2000 and whatever 19 i would think it's fake i don't know why yeah yeah i think that's part of it as well is that it could only have happened in the 70s and 80s and our appreciation of it now is related to the fact that it was originally from the 70s and 80s yeah. And so we still see it as being like purely created in that period of time. And it, so it retains this like perfection, air quotes, like this aura of wholesomeness that we just can't make anymore in 2019. Another perspective, I think in that era, there was a lot less dirty laundry that could potentially sort of corrupt the, the image of somebody. Because if, if for, you might need to correct me here, but wasn't the dude behind one of these like Sesame characters like really not a good dude? Oh, I know who you're talking about. One second. You're still there? Yeah, it is. It's Pee Wee Herman, but I can't find the exact scandal. Oh, Pee Wee. I, I wasn't thinking Pee Wee Herman. I was thinking one thinking of the of dudes that. No. Ooh. Pee Wee Herman, I, I thought maybe it was somebody in the realm of like Bert and Ernie. We don't have to go into it, which goes yeah. to what you were saying about like things from the past being less problematic because there was just not as much of a system around causing rumors and spreading rumors. But I think my question still holds, which is not only, you know, we, we talked about why is Bob Ross so popular now and the specific appeal of Bob Ross and then also why people are kind of gravitating to this content right now. But I think we haven't totally covered the answer to that question because I think, again, this is the theory part of, this is the opinion part of this podcast. I think it's not just that that content is no longer creatable, like that content just exists in that time, but also it's the climate that we're in right now where we're looking for material that is genuinely relaxing and can, hmm, how to say this, that isn't wrapped up with an influencer, doesn't have potentials for future problems. Like we need things that are not brain engaging, like don't require us to critically think too much. Yeah. I was in a discussion with somebody and they were looking for some vacation reading material they're like nothing too heavy or dense i'm like yeah actually sometimes you just need that right yeah 
I'm not saying but, that's all you consume, but sometimes you need it. There is also this other subject I almost picked for today. Have you heard about the Area 51 meme? Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay. Well, no, I say that's a matter of fact, but not everyone has heard of it. Well, I definitely think the Area 51 meme is something that's very temporal and like in three weeks time, we're all going to have forgotten about it. So there was this Facebook page that got really popular suggesting that in September, one million people should gather at Area 51 in the States and then storm it. And for our non-US based listeners, Area 51 is a common name of a highly classified United States Air Force facility located in Nevada. Okay, so there's this Facebook page it was started out of comedic satirical purposes, suggesting that people storm Area 51 to really find out what's in it. And then it got super popular and then spun off into a hundred different memes. So I almost picked that for today's subject because I just thought it was funny and relevant to our current age. And then I was thinking maybe actually the reason I wanted to pick Area 51 and I wound up picking Bob Ross is similar because I think that they point at people's need to look for content that is hopeful and more... I'm more I really want to say the word pure, but I don't know if that's the right word. Like they know that Area 51 is a joke for the most part, but it's really pure in the sense that it's like a pure joke to them. And that it's also yeah. hopeful in the sense that, oh, maybe a million people could hypothetically storm the U.S. Air Force military base. And I think mm -hmm. that is similar, at least to me, to the attraction to Bob Ross in the sense that you need to find something that is not the actual real political situation. That's my conclusion. That's my wrap up. Is this really just a representation of where we are currently in that hope is the one thing that people are trying to like leverage? Or anything you do today or tomorrow is really about hope because hope is in such low quantities. And nostalgia is the one thing that provides us that sort of glimmer of hope. Yeah. I agree. I have nothing to add. I think that was a really good wrap up. Also wanted to give a shout out to Spencer K, who on the Make and Slack community gave a really thorough response to Making It Up episode 95, which we really appreciate. It's a thorough breakdown of fractional ownership of illiquid assets that have unique costs and revenues. And Eugene's going to give you a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I think Spencer really provided a lot of color and clarity around the concept behind what Otis is, fractional ownership, what it means to actually break up one thing into multiple shares. And he kind of he kind of compared it to uh, stock splitting with shares. So some of these things actually, when I, when I was looking at them, they were beyond what I knew about this world. It was just sort of like on a face value of what I know about collecting stuff, sort of that world of business behind, I guess, desirable assets, right? Like hype stuff. Let's, let's call that. He, he kind of brought in some different terms as well, identifying value. And he had this equation where value equals potential sale value minus purchase value minus the cost of carry plus convenience yield. So cost of carry is insurance, storage, and transport, maintenance, and interest. 
while convenience yield are the financial returns directly from ownership of them. So for art, this could be income from showcases, collection, gallery tours and rentals, IP usage, etc. So I think that part was really interesting because it provides to maybe the more layman like myself or, or Cherise, like how people look at art yeah. or how they value these things. Yeah. Yeah. And then where Spencer's argument winds up going, it's really long and detailed. So Eugene and I are doing it a disservice by this summary. But where it eventually goes is he says, lastly, Otis can make money via funding, buying, selling related fees via operational profit if convenience yield is greater than cost of carry and via retaining partial ownership of assets that they sell for profit. It's a pretty good deal for them, albeit from esoteric finance. I think it could be defendable if Otis earns a strong brand for their track record of value creation from superior selection slash management. I have less hope for liquid trading of sales prior to a sale. The business model alone of securitizing illiquid assets has limited shelf life once competitors join. Yeah, so Eugene, I really appreciate hearing from actual experts or more expert than the two of us on the subjects we talk about. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at sharice at macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or eugene at macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs> <laughs>